Hey everybody, welcome back to a new year of the So We Speak podcast. We are coming off of a great year here at So We Speak and uh, one of our most prolific years with new content. Uh, We've got new writers, new guests on the podcast, and we've got a lot of stuff coming up in 2023. Currently, we're in the middle of our book giveaway and we've had about half of our winners announced and probably by the time you're listening to this, almost all of our winners announced. But uh, congratulations to those who have won and those who are still yet to win in our 12 days of Christmas. Well, we're kicking off the new year with a really special episode and one I've been excited to do for a long time uh, with Dr. John Mead. Uh, John is a professor at Phoenix Seminary. He's also the director of the Text and Canon Institute. Uh, but what you'll hear most in today's episode is he is an expert on how we got the Bible, canon lists, manuscripts, textual criticism. Uh, we have a great conversation about can we trust the Bible? And whether that's talking about the transmission of the Bible through history, the Bible you have in your hands now, the translation that you choose. Uh, John is just full of information on how our Bibles were formed, what the process has been like of God preserving his word, and the confidence that we can bring to the Bible today. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation. I'm really excited to kick off the new year talking about Scribes and Scripture, one of my favorite books of 2022 with Dr. John Mead. Well, hey, John, thanks so much for coming on the So We Speak podcast. We're really excited to have you on here to talk about your new book, Scribes and Scripture. Great, Cole. Great to be with you. As our listeners know uh, from posts, and and, uh, we've been promoing a little bit that you're coming on here because this was one of my books of the year that I recommended. And uh, I wanted to get a little bit of the background of this just because it it captures uh, something that I think a lot of books miss. It's both scholarly in its research and in what you're getting out of it, but it's written to lay people. And it's one of those books that I enjoyed reading. For my own knowledge, there's a lot in here I didn't know, but I also was really excited to give this book to people that are asking questions about the Bible. So was that your intention from the get-go? How did you guys come up with the idea and the execution? Yeah, wonderful question. So uh, my co-author, Peter Gurry, he's also a colleague of mine at Phoenix Seminary. And uh, he, he, of course, is an expert in the area of New Testament, and I, I dabble in the areas of the Old Testament. And um, probably the, uh, the the best answer to that is long before we even thought about a book, we we had thought about how do we how do we combine our our expertises and our talents to to tell the story of the Bible in a conference format. So I think around twenty end of twenty sixteen or seventeen something like this. Uh, no, it must have been sorry, it must have been the end of seventeen or eighteen. Actually, we decided. Hey, let's launch the Scribes and Scripture conference. Then basically we made it into a traveling conference. Uh, pastors or, or or churches could could have us come out and give four different talks on the history of the Bible. So it started off with me giving a talk on um the Old Testament textual history. And I'm sure we'll get into some of these as well. And then Peter would would give a talk on the New Testament manuscripts. Are they reliable? You know, these kinds of things. And kind of after doing about, I don't know, a good number of these, Cole, we just realized that we're not saying everything that needs to be said. In fact, no book could or no conference could. But we did think that a book for lay people 
on this exact issue would be worthwhile doing because every time we would leave the conference, I think people were, well, they were, they were inundated, but they also had questions. Mm-hmm. And we knew as they had kind of put together that we weren't able to say everything. And so we thought about a book hitting those main issues that the conference had touched on, text, canon, translation. And, and then so, so after doing about 10 of these, we realized, okay, let's put a book together. Let's actually think about this and, and do it. And so that's, that's where the book came from, was these conferences. So somewhere in the preface, I think we thank all those churches early on that, that listened to our drivel you know, and really, <laughs> and really, and really helped us hone the content, you know, for the book. And, uh, so that's, yeah, that's, that's what's out there now is, is the fruit of all of that. Well, you can tell that you guys have workshopped the ideas and taught them many times because it, it, the book, one of the amazing things about the book is it hits such a huge percent of the questions that I would get asked, you know, on a daily basis as a pastor, how do we know we can trust the Bible? what's the deal with the differences in the manuscripts? Which translation should I use? I mean, those those questions you get maybe once a week or more, just because there's a lot of curiosity about how we got our Bible. And if we believe and preach that it's the Word of God, and then you watch some History Channel documentary or you read some article that's like, well, actually, it's not God's Word. The originals were. And then questions start to creep in. And I just feel like this really nailed the questions that people are actually asking, uh, which makes it such a great thing to recommend. The uh, the the approach at the end of the book, if, if I could just summarize uh, one of the things I thought was really helpful is on the one hand, it's not kind of a Pollyanna. Let me just make sure you know that uh, everything you previously believed is true kind of book. You guys say at the end uh, when you hit complications in your mental picture of how the Bible came to us, which everybody is going to hit. There are two approaches. Mm -hmm. The first looks at the difficulties and concludes that Christians can't trust the Bible. And I think there's a lot of that culturally. And then the second, you guys write, the second says that Christians can trust the Bible, but unfairly downplays the difficulties. A more honest approach avoids both of these options. And I I think that's what you guys have done. There's some hard-hitting stuff in here that will challenge you. But at the end, you come back to a place of, well, we really can trust the Bible. And just it occurred to me, having a feel for that, did you find yourself in your scholarly journey in one of those camps or both, or have you been through that kind of avoiding both of these options? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. Uh, I, I don't know if I've ever been in one of those two options. I, I, I mean, I, well, that's not true. When you first become a Christian, uh, I would say that all of us are in that, that bit of a Pollyanna phase. We, we we hadn't even thought about the fact that English wasn't the language that the Bible was originally written in, right? Right. It's mainly like we're, we're just we're just reading it in our primary tongue, you know, and we're not even thinking about what's underneath. So the tip of the iceberg is is what's there. But then as you start to, um, you know, do your own reading, or or as you start to listen to to what teachers are saying, or all of a sudden you start to pick your head way up and you start to see what some of the skeptics in our culture are saying about the Bible. Uh, then all of a sudden the Pollyanna glasses have to go away because you mm-hmm. realize, oh, wait, okay, uh, there's more than meets the eye here. And so uh, so I think that phase, ha- that, that officially, I think, um, uh, came to a close with me the, the very first time I was in 
uh, a Greek one class at Columbia International University. I was a I was a beginning kind of sophomore, I guess, student there. And um, and I'll never forget the teacher was walking through this famous textual problem at the end of the gospel, according to Mark. And should, does the gospel end at verse eight or does it continue through nine through 20? And I'll never forget me just sitting there going, how do I have no opinion on this? Mm. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like, 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 how, like, how new am I to this stuff? You know, like that was the first, that was the first thought. Then the second thought came when, when a classmate of mine said to the teacher that you can't take those verses out of the Bible. And I was like, wait, okay, okay, now this makes sense. He, the, my, my classmate was assuming that that longer ending of Mark was already part of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and he accused the teacher, who was very conservative and very evangelical, of course, you know, of, of taking verses out, you know, oh, and, yeah. and, 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 and corrupting, you know, the Bible. And so, so as a sophomore in college, I'm thinking, through, okay, this, this is big. And Honestly, that bug bit me there, and mm. I don't think I've ever been able to shake it since. So, but in that incubator or, or that environment there at Columbia International University, what I would say is, um, though they, I don't know if they even put it this way, but they used that, they, they, but they kind of worked with this old Christian mantra of faith seeking understanding. And uh, this, of course, is 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 I think po- became popular with Augustine, and then of course Anselm, major thinkers in Western Christianity, um, and and I've kind of just latched on to that as I've delved into these areas, um, mm. as opposed to some sort of Enlightenment approach, which says I'm going to check faith at the door, and I'm going to just look at the evidence as if I could ever be that neutral. Right. You know what I mean. And and just sort of follow it wherever it goes. I I realized that was a dead end early on. Um, so so faith seeking understanding I think holds these two things in perfect balance with each other. I, I'm going to be a Christian as I do this, but I but but as a Christian I shouldn't take the ostrich approach and put my head in the sand. I should actually be actively seeking understanding on mm-hmm. on the kind of the whole host of questions here. So, so yeah, so, so the Pollyanna approach went away, but I don't think I could ever say I fell into despair. Now I did meet a lot of students Mm -hmm. who found themselves quagmired in despair. And that was, I think that's another catalyst that got me into these issues was, can I help uh, college and seminary students who have encountered these issues with the Bible's history can i help them uh come to come to good and reasonable answers on mm-hmm. this? so that's a that's a long answer but but that's uh yeah well i think that gives a good background to how you come to the topic and one of the takeaways from the book is as christians people who are believing and seeking understanding as you say we don't really have anything to fear from the real historical facts and the real manuscript evidence. Um, we can pursue that as believers. Now we may have to change a few of our models and constructs, and we may have to, you know, change a little bit of how we see the process of how the Bible came to us, but we have nothing to fear from investigating these issues. And that was a really strong takeaway from the book for me, because whether it's seminary or in the church, you do meet people that are just crippled with doubts that they've 
taken on from skeptics about whether or not this really is God's word and we can trust it and what's happened to it between when it was delivered and now when we're reading it. That's right. That's right. So if I could just summarize that really quickly, it's it's more like when when a when a when a kind of a lay person, lay Christian comes to these issues, they're confronted. Oh, there are differences between the manuscripts. Oh, there were disputes over canonical books. The the answer is not somehow to say, oh, all of a sudden there are no differences, or all of a sudden there were no ancient discussions. Right. Because um, that would that would sort of just be, you know, that would just be like a like a kind of a real adverse reaction to it. But but you use the right language there, and that's what we're trying to do. I think there's a new model, which which should help shape expectations mm-hmm. when we come to the Bible and really fundamentally shape what we mean by the Bible's reliability and trustworthiness. So, because mm-hmm. uh, one of the things we encounter is beyond uh, the opposite of the skeptic view, like you pointed out, is you a lot of Christians just have very uh, high expectations of preservation of what we mean by scriptural preservation and um, history guided by providence is just messier than that, you know? Yeah, it so, is. Anyways, that, yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, that's good. Well, the, the book is broken down into three big sections. And of course we, we won't have a chance to talk about everything in there, but I'd love to just hit each of these sections and maybe point out a couple of the highlights. They are the text the canon and the translations. Um, and to kick it off with the text, this this is maybe your first academic love uh, based on your dissertation work is manuscripts and critical editions and figuring out how to put all the evidence together to, to get a text. Uh, I was looking up earlier your dissertation and uh, it's a critical edition of the hexapleric fragments of Job 22 through 42. Give us a little bit you explanation it. <laughs> of what that means <laughs> and how that led yeah. into some of the interest in the, in the book. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's break that down. A critical edition. Maybe we'll start there. Um, textual critics and the, and the discipline of textual criticism uh, fundamentally is about collecting all ancient manuscripts of a book. Okay, so so that assumes that there are no original manuscripts or original copies of a of a of a work from antiquity. Uh, it, all those are gone. But what we have is the are, are the copies right of an ancient book. Okay, critical editions are are um, produced by textual critics who look and 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 gather all the evidence. And compare word by word all of the manuscripts, and from that make decisions upon what the original author or original document had. Okay, so so in a nutshell, a critical edition is trying to restore the original wording of a book from antiquity. Mm-hmm. Okay, is that clear enough? Okay, so so a critic, yeah, so a critical edition. Uh, in this case, of the hexapla. Now, the hexapla, Cole, you're going to have to cut me off because this could take the rest of our time. But the <laughs> I hexapla- knew in the sections where the hexapla kept coming up, I thought, oh, th- this has got to be John's <laughs> writing here. <laughs> That's right. John is talking to us here. That's right. The hexapla, uh, it, well, let's start with the term. It's, it's made up of two words, two Greek words. Hex is the Greek word for six. 
And pla is the Greek word for fold, a six-fold Bible. And what's meant by that is a six-columned Bible, okay? So perhaps you and your, and your listeners are well aware of these um, uh, uh, comparative English translations where you can kind of read the KJV, the NRSV, the NIV, and sometimes the ESV, all in parallel columns, mm-hmm. right? They'll put all four of them together. Uh, well, it turns out that's not a modern invention. Putting putting uh, text together in columns goes back at least to the second century AD, uh, and it and it was probably invented by by Romans actually, uh, who were trying to learn Greek. That's a whole long story, but but Origen, the church father from Alexandria, around two thirty five. AD started to put six different versions of the Old Testament together in columns. He started with the Hebrew column in Hebrew letters. He probably wasn't an expert in Hebrew. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> scholars debate whether he he even knew Hebrew at all. So there's a little bit of debate there. But in the second column is that same Hebrew text, but now in Greek letters. Okay, and uh, and then after that, four different translations of that Hebrew text. Uh, you had the the Jewish reviser named Aquila, uh, another reviser named Symmachus. Then you had the famous edition known as the Septuagint. Okay, and then you had another one uh, entitled Theodosian in column six. So. So Origen put all these together. And some have asked, well, why did he do that? And there's lots of reasons for that. But but number one, there's no doubt Christians and Jews were debating uh, the interpretation of various passages. So Isaiah 7.14 is a great example of this sort of thing. When, um, when Christians and Jews debated about whether Jesus, the Messiah, was born of a virgin, in fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14, they actually, they actually couldn't get past the translational issue. So, so a Christian would quote that verse to the Jew saying, well, no, it says the Parthenos, the virgin mm-hmm. would uh, conceive and bring forth a son, you know, and, and the, the Jew would return fire, return volley and say, no, 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 no. The text says, behold, the young woman, the neonis will conceive, right? Kind of assuming in the natural way mm-hmm. and, and, and give birth to a son. And so, so all the way up until origin, the Jew, Jewish and Christian uh, apologist and polemic would sort of like debate, like just the fundamental meaning of this verse. Well, in something like the hexapla, now you could actually see all of the different Greek renderings of that Hebrew text, you see. So Origen's a scholar here, putting all of the data out in front of everyone to, to, to see, which I think is, is, is fascinating, a fascinating model in itself. But, but be that as it may, this thing was a monstrosity. This hexapla was a monstrosity. Over mm-hmm. 40 or 50 codices easily uh, to, to contain all of that information in columnar form. It probably was not copied fully. And so um, maybe a psal- maybe the Psalms were copied kind of individually or something like this, but never the whole Old Testament, I don't think. But snippets or fragments, which is the other term in that title of that book, 
the, 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 a critical edition of the fragments of the hexapla. The fragments occur in the margins of manuscripts or in, in comments by church fathers or in ancient translations like Syriac, of all things. Mm -hmm. uh, we, can actually, we can actually start to gather evidence from Aquila Symmachus Theodosian for, for the different books of the Old Testament. It, my, my particular edition was on Job 22 through 42, and uh, I think it was something over 400 pages just for the second half of Job. So, mm -hmm. um, so, so what this does, what this did for me though, well, how this got me really thinking is okay, these books, these even these versions of a book like Job, they all have a history, they all have uh, manuscript trails, manuscript evidence that has to be collected and it has to be compared and evaluated and decisions made on the original text have to be made, you see. And so that's in a nutshell what textual criticism is all about. But think about it as uh, the hexapla is a small chapter of the story of the text of the Old Testament, you see. And that's what 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 we one of one of the areas we tackled in scribes and scripture is how do we make sense out of the thousands of Hebrew Bible and Old Testament manuscripts that attest to the text and they don't all agree you see um I don't know about you Cole but when I when I'm out traveling and speaking on this topic a number of people come to me and they say well isn't the issue of the Old Testament text isn't that already settled isn't that like a slam dunk already? Uh, because um, I'm more worried. They're more worried about the ending of Mark 16, like we talked about mm. earlier. Or they're more worried about the woman caught in adultery in John 8. And I, when I, when you actually start to walk through some of the textual issues of the Old Testament, that's where I get more. I get I get surprised looks because right. they haven't heard. They haven't heard about the issues there. So, yeah. so scribes and scripture actually does walk through, as you know, a, a number of those. Yeah. yeah, I thought the hexapla was just a great, uh, almost a little parable of the way that scriptural traditions and manuscript evidence has been dealt with for thousands of years, extending back even before the time of Christ. A point that I hadn't caught that you all made that I thought was really interesting was there are witnesses, even in the biblical text, of people who are compiling texts and who are working through different manuscripts. Of course, you think of that with the Psalms and with some of the historical books that we know have had an editor's hand. But when you get to Ezra the scribe, and you guys pointed this out, probably some of what he was doing in the post-exilic time period was working through and restoring some of Israel's scriptures. And so that was just an insight that this has really been happening for a very long time. And we shouldn't be surprised that we're doing this textual critical work today, just as people That's have right. been doing for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I will, I'll just add 30 seconds out of that. That's exactly right. Um, and so definitely, I think on the biblical text side, on the Jewish side, so to speak, there was definitely, I think, lots of work going on. Um, and that's, that is evidenced well in a place like Qumran, uh, where the, a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. There, no doubt, just innovative, conservative, fascinating, all kind of in this beautiful mess. Yeah. <laughs> no, not mess, but, but I, maybe what I really want to say is like a, really a beautiful mosaic, actually, mm -hmm. where, 
it, you can you can trace a thread, but there's lots of different threads going on. But when you step back, it's it, it comes into this beautiful whole, right? And I when I see the evidence at Qumran, schol- some scholars choose to focus on all the vast differences, and they're just tracing individual lines of a mosaic. Um, but when I when I when I and others say go and look at it, we say, ah, uh-uh, no, no, it's more complementary. Mm-hmm. Like yes, there are differences. Um, but they can be explained if we uh, if we apply a different model uh, to describing the textual uh, or the scribal uh, models going on here, this or the scribal techniques. That's a better word. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think we can I think we can um, put together a picture that that does justice to the diverse lines, but also a picture that shows how all those lines work together to form a complementary picture of the text history of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. But so so on the Jewish side we see it there at Qumran, but Origen to go back to the Hexapla for example, Origen shows us that that from uh, Alexandria Egypt, you know where the Alexandrian library was and these famous librarians there like Zenodotus and Aristarchus and and uh, several others, they were already working textually on Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. This is a fascinating, this is so untold. We just don't, we just don't go here, you know? And yet, like wait, centuries before Jesus now, you've got you've got uh Greek scholars and 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 tools being being uh formed and fashioned for how to work on copies of much more ancient literature. Or it's it's just it's the whole thing is so providential. This is not by accident that origin is from Alexandria, like like the place where where textual work was born, you know, in the Greek language. And and he's there. And Eusebius, his historian, says that origin is trained as a grammaticos. He's trained in the arts of grammar and in Mm. the arts of what we what we now today call textual criticism. And so when you when you take the time to like read Origen and some of his sermons, he's he's um he's actually using all the same language that we use today. So so try this one on Cole. When when uh when someone comes to a problem in manuscripts in the text, we oftentimes ask, well, what is the reading found in most of the manuscripts? Right? And Origen would ask that same question hmm. 2,000 years before us. Or sometimes we might ask this question, what is, is the reading in the oldest copies, right? Origen also talked in those terms. <laughs> or or, or the, here's the other one. How about the, more, the best manuscripts, the more reliable manuscripts, the more accurate ones, he would say. All of that language that we use today as modern textual critics is found in the discipline two millennia, almost two millennia mm. ago. And, and, and I think that's something Christians uh, are very, they, they, as soon as they hear that, they become far more curious about that. And oh, so, yeah. or yeah. So origin was aware of the difficulties, the tools he used to try to correct scribal mistakes. We're just, we're just familiar with, he 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 he's 
talking about them very similarly to the way we do. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's interesting. And this is where we get kind of what we were talking about earlier, just a little bit different model, maybe a more historically informed model of God's providence in keeping uh, his word preserved. So, you know, on the one hand, we might think, well, you know, if I were God, I would have just kept it under glass for 2000 years to make sure that, you know, the original copies were there. And then you start to learn about how God actually did it. And he used people like us and, uh, you know, through various different times and places, he brought people that had the requisite skills and ability to preserve. And, um, you know, he said his word through those means. And then, like you said, when you hear that, you say, oh, that is fascinating. Okay. I'm really, you know, a little bit even more wowed by what God did through what at times is a very tenuous process, uh, uh, rather than maybe what I would have expected. That's right. You've nailed it there. Uh, it's, it's, um, this is, this is, I think what we sometimes refer to as the humanizing of the process. So, um, the miracle of divine inspiration. And then, and then somehow, somehow immediately what, what is the product of, of a divine miracle becomes subject Mm. to God's providence in human history, which implies a certain amount of messiness. And And yet God's good intentions are still carried out. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, it makes total sense. When you think about it that way, he chose to write, scripture through human beings actually writing and thinking so it That's would right. make sense that he, cho- he chose to preserve it through human beings writing and thinking and messing things up and doing all kinds of things to get his perfect yeah. word to us um That's you know, right. I wanna, and and there you go yeah go ahead yeah well i want to make good. sure i get to the canon here because this is an, another area of your uh yeah. real research right. and expertise and it goes along with this same topic i i, I know i felt the shell shock uh going into seminary being at a little bit more progressive seminary, uh, we were reading a book called The Bible Made Impossible, which was kind of a assault on biblicism. I didn't know at that point I was a biblicist, but I was definitely a biblicist. And so I was right in the bullseye of this book. And, and you get a little <laughs> shell shock of, well, you know, the canon has been very fluid in history. And how do we really know that these books that are in are the ones that should be in? And what about all these other books? And, you know, I think the common thing today and one of the a couple of the claims that you guys worked through in this book that I thought was really helpful is oh, the church just selected the biblical books. You know, you hear this a lot. Well, the church just chose at you know the councils, what books they wanted in and out, and uh, you hear things like, "What about all the other biblical books? You know, the lost gospels mm-hmm. and all that." And then the other thing is, oh, there was a long period when the when the church didn't have a Bible, uh, so right. you know, how can we put so much weight on the Bible now when for three or four hundred years they didn't even have a Bible? So you know, and so, and and the implications of that could be very faith shaking. Uh, but I love the way you guys work through that, and and maybe I just summarize on this section by saying, what to you are the strongest arguments or the strongest evidence that we have the 66 books that God intended us to have in the Bible? Yeah, that's great. So, um, so, so as a, as a Protestant, and this, I think this surprises folks as a Protestant, um, there's, there's really two, two lines of complementary argumentation here. Uh, but one, the first one I'm going to mention, I think has been, oh gosh, how do I say it, Cole? 
overplayed, so to speak. It's it's the self-authentification of scripture. So what this means is for, for your listeners, right, is when when a when God's divinely inspired word is is read, uh there my my spirit uh or the spirit in me, the Holy Spirit, right, attests that that is God's word to me. Okay. Um that so the self-authenticity of scripture. Um has now somehow come also to enwrap itself in the self-authenticating canon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, this is tricky. It, it's not altogether wrong because in our book, we do like this metaphor that I think it captures it really well. And G, I mean, as you might expect, right? Jesus uh, gives us this metaphor, right? My, I, where it, when he says, right, I know my sheep and my sheep know my voice right? My sheep hear me when I'm talking. And, and by that, right, he must mean in what my apostles are going to record, okay? Or, or preach or, or whatever at that time. My sheep, Jesus' sheep, recognize his voice, and there is a self-authentication going on there, okay? That's, so I want, to, I want to make sure I note that before I say what I'm going to say next, okay? But that is the card that is played throughout. Because Protestants, I think, have, uh, have, for whatever reason now, not earlier, not before, but now, Protestants are afraid of church tradition. Okay, and that's that was actually me uh, several years ago. Well, because I, I knew about these so-called canon lists, okay? But what I didn't know uh, I, I didn't know what their contents were like at all. Okay. So, so at, over the, the last several years, I've been delving into what has the church said is, is the canon and Cole, the answers are fascinating because, um, let's just jump to the old Testament for a second. Interestingly, the new Testament is agreed upon by all major branches of the church today. Uh, the, 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 the Eastern Orthodox may have a lingering question about the book of revelation at this point, but, but I actually think it's included, uh, in their Bible. Okay. If that makes sense, but, but Catholics and Protestants both have the same firm 27 book new Testament. Um, I think what fascinates about the new Testament is its earliest history especially when it's framed in that way that you framed it earlier about, well, Christians were just picking and choosing about which books to include. And there were so many more gospels than the four. So, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, yeah. My, you know, was it just sort of a crapshoot that, that led to the four gospels that we have today and, and these kinds of questions. Uh, so I think that part uh, of the New Testament canon formation is interesting, but it's not as a li- it's not as live an issue when you actually get down to settled canons. Okay, but the Old Testament, as your reader, as your listeners might guess, the Old Testament is a live issue, even when it comes to settled canons, because all all branches of Christianity have a base layer of books. I'll come back to that in a minute. But some include more books than that base layer. And let's just start with the Roman Catholics, who have included seven extra books. They've included uh, the Wisdom of Solomon, 
the book of Ben Sira or Ecclesiasticus is what it would be called in, in the Roman Catholic Bible. Uh, Judith, Tobit, first and second Maccabees, and then a, a short book known as Baruch. Okay, so they've got seven extra books in their canon. Now, it was not always so, or at least I shouldn't say, at least I should say this, it wasn't always as firmly settled as it is now. The, in 1546, the Council of Trent uh, made a decree that uh, the one who doesn't hold to the, to the canon list in this decree, let him be anathema, okay? And, uh, and that would really include all Protestants and all Catholic scholars who hadn't quite jumped on board with that view. And I'll come back to that in a minute too. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, uh, but that decree for the very first time, a canon list was made as a decree where if you didn't believe it, you were cursed, you were anathematized. Okay. That's really interesting. Um, so, so Trent took a hard line position and that, basically is what put us in our camps on the on the shape of the bible okay and and that's unfortunate but let's say a little bit more when if we can get back behind trent just a little bit which we certainly can what's interesting is christianity has almost from the very beginning almost always adopted the books in the hebrew canon okay that is the, the the Jewish scriptures. We should anticipate this because Paul in Romans 3, 2, right? 3, 3, 3, 2 says something like this, right? What advantage is it to being a Jew, right? He's talking to the Christian, the, the Gentile Christians in the church in Rome, right? Like what, what is the advantage of being a Jew? And to their surprise, he says, well, much in every way. And he begins with saying, that they possess the oracles of God. The Jews of Paul's day had received the oracles, right? The canon, so to speak, of the Jewish synagogue, you see, from day one. Paul says they have those. That's a huge advantage to them. Maybe mm -hmm. you should follow them is the implication, right? You should follow them in adopting the oracles of God. And here's exactly what they did, Cole. It's unbelievable what happens now in these canon lists. Let me just – a canon list, it's, it, hopefully that doesn't sound too esoteric. Um, all I mean by that are the early tables of contents that are in the Bible the, – of the Bible, okay? Actual lists of books that church fathers, early church uh, synods, um, and, and manuscript at time, manuscripts at times include – um, that's all we mean by that. And, and so in scribes and scripture, I think in appendix, uh, a or B, one of the two, I give, uh, several examples of these canon lists. So you can actually go look and see what did Athanasius, the church father think was in the Bible, these sorts of things. When you actually get into these, they largely mirror the contents of the Hebrew Bible. And they actually say like Athanasius of Alexandria, so around 367, he, he, when he gives his listing of the Old and New Testament books, he says that, uh, as I've heard, these are the 22 books according to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So he actually, actually understands this tradition that the mm -hmm. Jews had 22 books. 
because they had 22 letters in their Hebrew alphabet. And again, in the book, we explain the different numberings, but, but just to give your, your, your listeners an example, that what we count as 12 individual minor prophets, uh, the Jews counted as one book, the book of the 12 prophets, you see. So you can see like how immediately you're going to get down to 22 rather than the 39 mm-hmm. uh, books that we have in our Old Testament. So, so again, we handle that in the, in the book just to show there, there were a couple different numbering systems, uh, but same contents. Uh, are are being t- discussed. So so when Athanasius lists the twenty two books of the Old Testament, he basically lists all the books in the Hebrew canon, and therefore Cole all the books in the Protestant canon. Now a couple exceptions. He he does not list Esther. Esther was a disputed book amongst Jews, even, and uh, and so Athanasius is one of the few Christians that doesn't list Esther among the books of the Old Old Testament. So that, again, right, no one person's deciding the canon. I look at Athanasius as a, as a piece of the puzzle. Do you mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? So, so I don't look at him to say whether I should include Esther or not. That's not, right. what, that's not the point. So many canonists include Esther that I just think Athanasius is misinformed, you see, uh, on the status of Esther. Right. Now there were a couple, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I hope that oh, yeah. makes so, so, so in other words, on the whole, Esther is included, um, even if my single piece of Athanasius, you know, doesn't have it. So I, I kind of bring all that evidence together and just say, well, on the whole, the vast majority of Jews and Christians are, are reading Esther canonically. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is authoritatively. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's that. I just want to make sure that part's clear there too. So, um, but then, you know, I just want to be fair to Athanasius. He does include um, Baruch as a part of Jeremiah. Uh, and, you know, he, and he, he has another more popular version of Esther, uh, of Ezra Nehemiah uh, called uh, one Esdras that he also uh, would include in his canon. But basically those are just, they're, they're, they're the same book, I think, in their thinking. It's just a different version, uh, right. more popular version. Yeah. So I don't think there's like a big deal there necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but more, most importantly for us, though, and this is, this is what surprised me because I didn't know what I was going to find in these lists. Athanasius doesn't include books like First and Second Maccabees. Mm. He doesn't include books like Judith and Tobit. He doesn't include books like Wisdom of Solomon. Or, or Ecclesiasticus, Ben Sira. In fact, of those four books, Judith, Tobit, first, uh, not uh, Judith, Tobit, Wisdom, and Ben Sira, he he specifically says these are not canonical. Okay, so the Council of Trent, for example, couldn't go back to Athanasius to find confirmation for their canon. It doesn't hmm. work that way. In fact. Athanasius's canon is far closer in correspondence to the Protestant canon, you see, than than it is the Catholic canon. And mm-hmm. so, and because and it's because Athanasius had adopted the Hebrew canon criterion. Whatever the Jews are are reading canonically, we also accept. Does that make sense? Right. So so that's that's what's in play there. And the and the interesting thing is there are 12 early canon lists like that that all exclude those apocryphal books uh, from the canon and just put forth basically the Hebrew canon with one or two of those those differences that I mm-hmm. that I mentioned earlier. 
So I think that's I think that's stunning. Protestants then are really surprised to hear that the tradition, the earliest tradition on the canon, actually supports what's in their Bible, you see. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Catholics, Catholics are always saying, well, Protestants removed books from the Bible. Yes. But that assumes that, of course, those books were in the Bible in the first place, you see. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So there's no doubt some church fathers like Augustine, who's my theological homeboy, right? I, I like <laughs> Augustine. Uh, <laughs> but Augustine and I would disagree on the... Um, contents of the canon. He he very clearly lists the apocryphal books as part of the canon of the Old Testament. Right. And uh so Trent Trent went that way. Jerome and Athanasius and and several others uh become the basis more for the Protestant canon. Okay. And thinking about it through the lens of whatever the Hebrew canon had is what we should have. Augustine went and thought about it through a different lens, whatever the church finds edifying mm-hmm. and whatever the church accepts and reads, that's what we should have, you see. Right. So, yeah, so I I, I think we lay that, I, I call that the criteria crunch. There's uh-huh. a, there, there's two different criteria involved for, for yeah. the Old Testament canon there. Well, I, I like the, that you put it that way because one of the things I learned in the book was, yes, some of these early lists look more like the Protestant Bible than the Catholic Bible. And the line that you often get is exactly what you said. Well, Protestants left out some of the ones that were in, but really the earliest evidence would would be contrary to that. And the second thing is anytime you have a canon list, you have a theology of canon and of inspiration more, more likely that goes with it, you know? So For sure. when we say something is inspired, canonical, authoritative, we mean different things by those words. And that's going to demarcate how we determine the canon. I mean, there's always been books that are important and probably true historically that are not canonical books. And it's one Correct. thing to acknowledge, yeah, those are great. And there's a few of them quoted or referenced in the new Testament that, uh, are edifying and people would have known, but that's not an argument that they should be in canon. Um, that's, and, that's, that's exactly, yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, so that's right. I, I thought that was one of the really compelling parts of the book is yes, there's a lot of messiness involved, but when you take, when you zoom out and you look at these canon lists and the process and church history, you arrive at a, a really confident place that we have the list of books that God uh, intended for totally. us to have. That's right. And then even further research from that shows there are different other regional canons, you know, that these are going to be talked about more and more as we go forward. So I don't we don't talk much about the Eastern Orthodox canon in this book. But but what's becoming clearer is that the the regional uh, branches of the church, so to speak, they're just they're idiosyncratically, they're adding books to an already settled foundation. Mm-hmm. And what's still unclear is just what you said. It's still unclear to me, and I think to some of these groups as well, from based on my research, uh, what's canon and what is that edif- what's edifying, what mm-hmm. what's useful scripture. So so they might even talk about a book like uh the wisdom of Solomon as as scripture. 
but they don't mean it as canonical or authoritative. Sometimes mm. they just mean wisdom is a useful book, and they don't necessarily conflate that with a divinely inspired authoritative book, okay, right. or canon. So there's so much more investigating to do on these questions, but we do say in our book, because in the earliest sources, there is that distinction between canon and useful or edifying. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And so this was, I think, I, I'm i glad we included this because I think for Protestants, it's still going to be helpful to think through, well, okay, then what do I do with these extra books? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what, exactly. what's, what's my, re- yeah, what's my relationship to these? And basically we say, look, there's no necessity to read them. They're not in the canon, but the vast swath of Christian history shows that those books were always thought to be uh, important at a at a useful and edifying level, you see. And so, so my my encouragement is, you know, read those books just as as early devotional literature. I wouldn't read them as a, an authority or in a, in a place to be able to establish doctrine upon. Like a, that's not how. But 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 read them as as edifying because mm-hmm. cr- Christians for centuries have approached them at that level, at least. Right. So that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to say a word about translation before we run out of time here. Uh, Translation questions are ubiquitous. What translation do you use? And you guys presented a lot of the spectrum on modern translations. One of my takeaways from the book was just how much of a process translation has always been. If you start with the Septuagint and the Vulgate and Wycliffe and Tyndall and King James all the way up to the, you see that, Translation actually is always building on other translations. You know, even our English Bibles today that reflect some of the phrases that Tyndall originally wrote in the King James or the Geneva Bible, we Mm -hmm. still like to keep some of those because they're so quick to our ears. Uh, even where now the other passages don't sound like they would have in those books. It's it's translation is an amalgam. And and one of the things that you hear people say is something is always lost in translation. Um, and, and uh-huh. so you can you can kind of take a snobbish route and say, well, you know, the only way to really get God's word is to read the Greek and Hebrew. Uh, or on the flip side, it's like, well, it doesn't really matter what translation you use. They're all pretty good. Just pick one that you like. Probably the best advice is in the middle of that. But how would you respond to somebody that says, well, you know, something's lost in all translations? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um... So I want to I want to affirm that uh, a little bit, um, and I, and again I, as you can tell with me, Cole, it's how does history inform you know our perspectives today? So um, and even language. So so the term for translator in Greek is a hermeneutes, and someone might put together like that. Oh, that's where I get hermeneutics from, or our principles of interpretation. You see, a hermeneutes is a translator, but he's an interpreter. And in the Latin makes it even clearer that the Latin term for translator is an interpress. Hmm. And so um, what what the ancients saw uh, and what I think some of us moderns are a bit more reticent to see in some ways is that there's always a fair amount of interpretation involved in translation. Okay, that's the bottom line. So, so we could lose some things, but we might. But we're. But I think 
what, what's happened over the centuries is, but what are we gaining? We're gaining being able to access the thoughts of a of a of an author in a language that I can't read. Right. So so the does that make so the some so some of the some of our own translation debates today, like should we should we all should we translate more word for word, right? And that's supposed to be more literal, right? Or should I translate more thought for thought or sense for sense? What's what's astonishing is like the 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 church father Jerome, you know, around 400 AD, he he frames the he frames the issue in exactly the same way, you know, and uh, and as say Origen, who talked about him already, and Jerome, as they talk about the Jewish reviser Aquila, they describe Aquila's uh, translational philosophy as slavish. He is enslaved to the Hebrew, to the source, you see, as he tries to bring the text out into Greek. Isn't that fascinating? Mm-hmm. So I. I I just go, oh yeah, we we use that same rhetoric today, and uh, <laughs> so almost two thousand years ago, this translation debate is unfolding before us. So all that to say, translation involves a certain amount of interpretation. Now we are always trying to balance, and I think we can describe it a bit more sophisticatedly right now, right? Like, and then this is what we do in the book: Are we trying to uh, bring the biblical world more into ours? Or vice versa, mm-hmm. you see. And and if we're really just trying to repeat the biblical world, we're gonna get, we're gonna wind up with a far more literal wooden type translation. Or if we really are trying to kind of put put that biblical word more more in our own terms, right? We're gonna wind up with a more dynamic kind of kind of um, sense for sense, thought for thought kind of translation. So, um, so in the book, we, th- we lay out a spectrum, right there, everything from, you know, the King James version, which is more of that literal, I guess I would say, uh, down to say the message, right. Which is like a paraphrase, uh, and, and everything in between, right. We've got a good spectrum. So we don't actually come down in this book on like, what's the English translation. I think what we're trying more to get across is, is take advantage of the many English translations that you have. There are so many. When you're studying a given passage, take the time to read several English translations on that passage, and and you're going to glean and learn new things about the meaning of that text that you would not otherwise. Okay, mm-hmm. so, so does that make sense? So so we're trying to celebrate the 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 many English translations as opposed to. Um, <laughs> uh, diminish that fact, but right. but I the other thing, but but the other thing about the history is is that before the King James Bible, and uh, and this was kind of news to me as as we were working on this, um, because I, I I I I'm kind of a novice still in these uh, these sort of sixteen fifteen hundreds English translations, but but one thing that's really clear is that there are many of them. You know everything from the Matthew Bible to the Geneva Bible, uh, the Great Bible. Like there's just all these different options of of the Bible in English before 1611, it, with the King James Version. And so, in some ways, the modern period with all of its English translations actually mirrors better the earlier phase of English Bible history, where there were many different options. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't until the king James <laughs> said, "Okay, none of those are allowed to be printed or sold anymore. We're going to go with the one Bible here, and that that's why it had you know a, a two and a half century run, you know, like it did." So, well, I was looking for. Uh, there's a quote that you guys put in here from Bruce Metzger that I thought you know that that could be true today as much as it was then and I'm, i may not be able to find it in time but he was pointing to these pre uh oh here it is he was pointing to these pre king james uh versions he says for the idiom and the vocabulary tyndall deserves the greatest credit for the melody and harmony coverdale for scholarship and accuracy the geneva version and it's like you could almost insert in asb or the message right. or that, ESV. You got to find what they're good for. Ex what are they trying to yep. accomplish? And then use them as tools and use them widely. You know, read several versions or have a version that you like to study with and then have a version that you like to read the Psalms out of and compare it to others. And, you know, it's it's the same now as it was then. And that's the case with a lot of things in this book that uh, it just reminds us <laughs> we've been through a lot of history in the church and uh, we're staying on their shoulders. You, you, you've got it, man. I mean, that's exactly right. It, it not much is new under the sun as Ecclesiastes right. tells us, you know? Yeah, that's so, right. It's fascinating. Well, John, I could, I could ask you questions about this book forever, but I really want people to go out and buy it and read it. Uh, scribes and scripture, the amazing story of how we got the Bible. I'm so thankful for the time you've taken to come on. Um, as a last question, what are you working on next? What, what should we look for in the future from you and from the Texan Canon Institute? Yeah, wonderful. So textandcanon.org is going to continue in the new year with uh, publishing new articles on various aspects to the Bible's history. But probably my, my next serious project uh, is um, kind of, as you might expect now, picking up on origin again as textual critic. Uh, I've got uh, about 11 academic essays on my desk that I'm working to edit and to and to shape into a multi-authored book on origin as textual critics. So, so again, probably not a book for the layperson, <laughs> but but hopefully a book that will be published in the in the higher ra uh, rankings of academia mm -hmm. uh, that will continue to inform scholarship uh, on the on, on sort of the early Christian history of textual criticism of the Bible. Uh, and so the more I think we know about that, as you can guess now, the more we'll actually be able to understand our own context better. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening. And we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. <laughs>